China, a country subject to stories of grandeur and predictions of impending collapse. Is Beijing the unstoppable superpower, or on a fast track to the dustbin of history, or something in between? Today, Ryan Yang joins me to answer these pressing questions to clear up often shallow narratives about America's geopolitical rival, and lament from our comfortable chairs about why we're right and why everyone else is wrong about U.S.-China relations. Welcome to the AIER Standard, a production of the American Institute for Economic Research. I'm Ethan Yang. Ryan Yonk is a senior research faculty here at AIER, and among other things, is supervising my research on China. Today, I will be presenting him with a variety of themes surrounding Chinese affairs and asking whether he finds them to be overrated, underrated, or correct. As someone who has researched this topic, I'm hoping this will be an interview where I get to talk as well. But Ryan's my boss, so I'm probably just going to agree with him. Ryan, welcome to the show. Well, that's a nice nonsense piece that you claim there that you're going to just agree with me, Ethan. But uh, that, that'd be a refreshing new take, but uh, not ultimately what we want. Uh, well, I'm glad to be here. Of course. So let's get started with the first theme. So I'm sure this is what everyone wants to know right off the bat. Um, this, this idea China is going to overtake the U.S. as a superpower and they're going to take over the world. And so that's why the U.S. needs to act now. We need to act aggressively. We've got to hit fast. We've got to go in hard. What do you, overrated, underrated? Oh, I mean, that's, so clearly I believe that's an overrated proposition. Um, In general, I think lots of our understanding of China is um, fundamentally a misunderstanding of both what the Chinese goals are, but Mm -hmm. also what the Chinese could actually accomplish. Uh, And so if we think about China challenging the U.S. in terms of um, them wanting to be, on par or regional power um, that's roughly equivalent with the U.S., especially in Asia and and East Asia in particular, I think that's a correct narrative. But in terms of wanting to supplant the United States as a singular global superpower, I think that's well outside the sort of the sort of expected the expectations of even the Chinese leadership of today. Um, that's not to say they don't have a clear agenda in places like Taiwan and Hong Kong. Uh, and even Southeast Asia and the developing world. China is clearly on its way to being um, a player mm-hmm. in those areas. But the notion that somehow this is a struggle of the ages, much like the United States and the Soviet Union, and ultimately good must conquer evil, those those narratives, I think, are a pretty fundamental misunderstanding of, of both Chinese relations and the relative power that China would be able to project over the short and the long run. Mm. And obviously on that point, I've had to agree that that's an overrated take as well. I guess the caveat I would add would be, I, I do I do agree with the framing of great power competition, maybe not the world conquest narrative. So I would go with, of course, China will not take over the world. Of course, they won't supplant the US, but they will be able to uh, play a larger role in global affairs that we might not be comfortable with. Uh, they might be able to int- introduce certain norms and shift um, certain practices around the world and maybe support different countries and actors that we may not may not agree with. Um, so perhaps the, the great power frame, competition framing, not necessarily the conflict of the Cold War framing, might be more. Yeah, so, so I'm not sure I'd go as far as to, to refer to it as a great power conflict. I think it's much more a regional mm. um, notion that China is is actively engaged in. Um, they clearly want to have a sphere of influence in Southeast Asia. They want to have a sphere of influence uh, in Africa. For a minute, they thought they wanted one in South America. Mm-hmm. 
that has not <laughs> gone well, mm -hmm. to say the least. And in fact, the African uh, investments are also not having the sort of effects that the Chinese might have predicted. In part, that's because of the manner in which they operate. Um, so great power competition, I think that's a little bit of an outdated um, approach to geopolitics. Um, I think that's very much the way the U.S. likes to cast geopolitics mm. is in a great power conflict. Uh, it's really convenient when the U.S. is sort of the remaining great power mm. um, to do that, to have it be set up that way. But ultimately, I, I would expect Chinese influence in, in Southeast and Eastern Asia. Um, clearly, Taiwan is a flashpoint, um, although we can get into later in this interview why I think China is I think Chinese leadership is better off threatening Taiwan than actually taking Taiwan. Mm. Um, but no, there's clearly a push for them to be um, more influential. On top of that, they're more integrated into the world economy than than they were 40 years ago. And that's going to have some substantial effects. Okay. Yeah, and that's certainly, I would agree with that. And I guess part of that part of that was that I think the Chinese may have had the stated intention of we're going to be this global economic power, we're going to infiltrate all these markets, we're going to use economic influence. And they tried that in Africa, they tried that in South America, and it turns out when you start dumping money into various third world economies, you don't necessarily get what you want. Those investments don't necessarily pan out the way you want. And perhaps that was their goal. They, they saw the economic influence that, got, that came from their economy, and they tried to maybe extrapolate on that with the Belt and Road Initiative, um, with trying to maybe strangle Europe into compliance with, like, for example, the Europeans care a lot about what's going on in Xinjiang. Um, so they'd say, shut about, the, about Xinjiang, you know, or else we're going to stop doing trade with you. But it turns out the Europeans... Um, maybe aren't that willing to just uh, go along with that as well. So. so so, you and I have had this fight a bunch, and I keep mm -hmm. editing this out of your writing, because I think infiltrates the wrong verbiage for, for Chinese interaction in the marketplace. Um, now, the stuff with Shenzhen is a, a fascinating case study. Uh, ultimately, the Chinese need the Europeans more than the Europeans need the Chinese. Um, there are, there's manufacturing capacity that could be developed elsewhere. Um, and we've seen it come online fairly quickly in places like Vietnam uh, and other um, developing countries. And so uh, China, I think, I think the lesson that was actually learned there wasn't on the European side. I think the lesson was actually far more learned on the Chinese side, that there were ways to get concessions on the Shenzhen problem that were not open confrontation, because that didn't work with the Europeans. Their, mm -hmm. their confrontation with the Europeans um, only resolved itself when the Europeans were able to um, save face on Shenzhen by getting at least by leaving in place most of their regulations, actually. And China found a way a way out where they saved face as well. And so um, I think the narrative of China as uh, as a capable bully, I think there were times when China would love to be a bully. It's just not the capable bully that sometimes people make it out to be. It's looked that way for a long time in the Belt and Road Initiative. But ultimately, you lend money to third world countries. Not, I mean, it's a real possibility. It doesn't get repaid, mm -hmm. and they keep what you built. Mm -hmm. And so the question is, as the Chinese increasingly separate themselves from the world order, particularly uh, the world trade order, the likelihood that that world order is going to support the Ch Chinese action to, to recoup their losses through the Belt and Road Initiative goes down pretty dramatically. And I think that ends up being a restraining force on China. Not a perfect one by all means, but, but certainly one where the calculation has to be made in Beijing. And 
Chinese interests are always at play here. Mm. And I, another point, I guess, another point on the offshoot of that I like to present about Chinese foreign policy is the people are looking at the Ukraine war right now. They're looking at China and Russia specifically. So, I'd, so I guess the next offshoot of that question would be overrated, underrated, a Russo-Sino alliance, you know, axis of evil type narrative. What, what do you think about well, that? Well, if they could pull it off, it would be quite terrifying. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but, prime, but not for the reasons many people think. Mm. Um, so, A, a um, there, is, there is not a strong Russian-Chinese alliance right now. Um, there, were, there was lots of happy talk at the start of the Ukraine war where, it, where China sort of signaled they were somewhat supportive of Russia, but they behaved exactly as China has behaved in every other international conflict. Mm. Uh, they didn't vote. They didn't vote things down. They still abstained, and that's, I think, uh, indicative of the Chinese position in most international relations. Unless there is a direct Chinese interest, if you watch their actions inside these organizations, they tend to abstain, and they did not use their power to support Vladimir Putin at the level an alliance would suggest. Uh, at the same time. Um, an alliance with Russia would be incredibly destabilizing for the current Chinese leadership. Mm. Um, Russia is um, not a not a particularly stable um, regime mm -hmm. at the moment. I think there's lots of hints to that. Um, and my my read on the Chinese is they va they value stability over virtually everything else, particularly in their geopolitical allies. And Russia's Russia's not that. Mm. Um, and they haven't acted they haven't acted the way a strong ally would in the Ukraine war. They've stayed out, um, and but that's what you expect from China in these things. Mm. I guess you see that with every other country China tries to buddy up with, be it North Korea or Iran. It's always this arm's length. Um, we hate the U.S., you hate the U.S., let's just work together where we work together, and then I'm not really going to help you out on anything else because I feel like it's always been very transactional. I, I believe the Chinese are probably very skeptical of getting entangled into various alliances, especially when it comes to when they don't share values. I guess it's easy for the U.S. and the U.K., for example, to maybe have some sort of alliance. But the U.S. or China and Russia have two very different views of their place in the world. Yeah. Russia being a kind of like a disruptive actor, like they just want to cause all sorts of trouble. China being very invested in the world order. They benefit from free trade and whatnot. So I guess it's like one China just doesn't have any countries that agree with them on on enough things to actually create a, a, a bountiful alliance. Yeah, so remember, um, those places where China views them, they consider them part of China. Mm -hmm. I and mean, this is the, the Taiwan issue. Mm. Um, Taiwan has a radically different worldview in terms of its political regime, but um, shares at least some common cultural aspects, and China's interested in that sort of connection, but they're very skeptical of others. Um, one of the features, I think, that matters in the Russian-Chinese um, arrangement is the very long land border between mm. Russia and China. Uh, that's an important part of what's going on. And so there is the transactional need to address it. Um, but there, at the same time, there aren't a lot of people living on the Russian-Chinese mm -hmm. border. And so, yes, it's a point where a, an actively hostile Russia would be problematic for China, but there's no hard push for them to be to be close allies. Mm -hmm. uh, we saw this all the way through the Cold War period as well. China and the USSR were not close buddies. Mm -hmm. um, they did collaborate in a few things, um, but uh, now very clearly created socialism with Chinese characteristics, mm -hmm. not just a pure importation of Leninism or Solonism. In fact, it was mm -hmm. very much not that. It was so quite nationalist in a way. Oh, it was a hugely nationalist <laughs> organization. Mm -hmm. And it, uh, in large part, um, 
wished to, it was it was unwilling to give up its Chinese character, and that I think is probably the most sort of dramatic thing that you have to keep in mind when China interacts on the stage is that China has interests, and the leadership of China in particular has interests, and discounting those I think is is at your own is at your own peril to understand what China will do. We tend to view we want to view them sometimes in U.S. foreign policy as one big group of problematic actors, mm. but they're problematic actors with very different interests. Mm. So we could talk all day about this topic, so I wanna move on, I guess, really quickly, knowing, given that most of China's relationships are transactional, given and knowing that uh, many of their ambitions are coming up against the realities of investing in different countries or countries just not agreeing with them to begin with, uh, what, what do you think should be a, a quick policy adjustment uh, for US foreign policy? Oh, so what should the US do in response? Well, I think the, the biggest one is um, not to expect that China will be remade overnight through trade. I think that's mm-hmm. one of the, the errors that was made early on in U.S.-Chinese policy. While at the same time, a confrontation strategy may, in fact, get you a confrontation. Mm. Uh, instead, I am, the, notion of tr- the, the trade notion, while I don't think it will transform China, does introduce stability into the world order, in my mind. Uh, at the same time, the U.S. should be cognizant of... Um, what the interests are of both the Chinese leadership and um, China as a nation state. I, I put far more stock in the interests of the Chinese leadership. This is the basis of the project you and I are working on. Uh, and so that when uh, Xi postures about Taiwan, there's a clear reason for that. Mm. And in fact, being able to posture about Taiwan is an important part of Xi's ability to maintain nationalistic furor around his, his rule. Um, getting Taiwan back would both be unpleasant for China to accomplish, and suddenly this issue is off the table. Mm. Um, They're seeing a little bit of this with the Hong Kong change, that now they suddenly have to actually run Hong Kong. Mm. And that is turning out to be far harder and far less of a popular endeavor with the Chinese public. Mm. So I guess simplified... um present the best case for the U.S. as possible through diplomacy, economic engagement, what have you, but also just let the Chinese do do all these unproductive experiments and kind of let it blow up. They're likely to do it. Um, so the one thing I would say is remember the lessons of public choice. Mm-hmm. Um, and that does mean that uh, the U.S. Um, should be cognizant and probably should be acting. Um, at my core, I'm probably a quasi-realist in terms mm-hmm. of international relations. Um, I just think realism needs the public choice aspect of the leadership added to it. If you mm-hmm. ignore the leadership of the country in your calculation of what the country's interests are, I think you've made a fundamental mistake. Mm. Our, our common boss might, you know, yell at us for this later. <laughs> um, mm. But I, I do think it's fundamentally a realist. And so the U.S. is also cognizant of its interests as it acts worldwide and should continue to do so. Mm. So since you mentioned I'm going to skip to a later theme, we can come back on, on track later. Um, so you, you mentioned the, the trade point, the economic yeah. engagement point. So many people today would say uh, Nixon's trip to China opening up was it may have made a lot of money, but now all of a sudden we've empowered our greatest rival. Um, you know, we have all the mess that we have today. So economic engagement with China and the good stakeholder theory, give, uh, positing that by trading with China, having commerce, that they're going to you know, be so invested, they maybe become a democracy or at the very least just behave in a way we might want them to behave. Overrated, underrated. Uh, so at least half of that is is pretty severely overrated. I mean, mm. uh, the liberal theory that somehow the engagement through trade was going to make China into a, 
a, a, a democratic system, I well, it was baloney uh, <laughs> from the beginning. Mm. Um, the other side. Now, I do think trade has had a restraining effect on China because the interests now of the Chinese leadership are in the continued economic growth. And this, in fact, is one of the, the problems I see for Chinese leadership. And that is for decades, they have delivered very large amounts of economic growth year on year. Um, Chinese, um, Chinese public has gotten very used to fairly dramatic increases in standard of living across the country um, year over year, decade over decade. And as the country gets richer, it's increasingly tough to do that. Mm. And it's even tougher to do that when they start to um, to run into, into trade problems. Mm. And so the Chinese leadership um, fundamentally um, it has undertaken, I think, a bizarre strategy, which is they're trying to switch to almost in all internal markets. Mm -hmm. um, they're not rich enough to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, the U.S. really can't do that effectively either because mm -hmm. it misallocates resources terribly. I'm assuming it's never really been done before. Um, they've tr people, I mean, nations try it. They get really poor. <laughs> um, I mean, no, in, in large part, this is the, the Soviet Union tried to do this. Mm -hmm. This was one of their major things um, within their satellite system. They were, they were trying to run a closed system, and it didn't work particularly well, uh, partly because you couldn't allocate resources by market mechanisms. Um, they then attempted to introduce quasi-market mechanisms, which had a bit of an improvement, um, but it didn't, didn't, run long, didn't work long run in the Soviet Union. The Chinese have had great success with markets, uh, even though they're not perfectly free markets. They did operate, um, as, as we would expect markets to, and the the idea that somehow they're going to plan internally for that to happen, I think, mm -hmm. is a, a grave mis, misstep by, by the current regime. Um, and, in fact, we're seeing that. So they've gone into zero COVID mode, uh, and they just postponed the release of all of their economic statistics. Mm -hmm. There's only one reason why you do that. Mm -hmm. It's not because they're great. <laughs> uh, it's because they look terrible. Mm -hmm. And they didn't want to release bad statistics, most likely, during uh, the, the, the party congress. Mm -hmm. uh, which is going on in China right now. So there's a bunch of things happening in China as we're talking um, that I think I know how they're going to come out, but but you never really know um, when the Politburo starts to meet. Um, pretty sure I know what will happen, but these things are happening in real time. Mm. Yeah, I guess I have to agree that the whole democracy theory, you know, complete. I, obviously, I wasn't there, so I, I shouldn't be talking about stuff that I wasn't born to talk about, but um, I think certainly underrated the, the effects of trade and restraining the Chinese government, especially today. Even I wasn't born yet either when you went to China. Just <laughs> go on. Um, <laughs> go we're, on. We're going to leave that in. Just, yeah, we are. Go on. Uh, <laughs> but I think the leadership today in Washington, I think there's definitely, especially I think the Biden administration's definitely softened up the tone when it comes to, I think I hear a lot more about more trade engagement, uh, compete where we can, trade where we can, fight where we must, like that attitude, which I think is much better than the Trump administration, which was just like, we need to economically bludgeon them, right? So do you think that strategy of, like, well, actually first, where do you think the idea of, we just need to take all the trade restrictive measures we can, like, where, where do you think they want to go? Like, what's the rationale behind it? Oh, that? it's the classic America first stuff. We've been doing this for several hundred years, this mm -hmm. ebbs and flows in the United States, that somehow uh, trade ends up costing us. Mm -hmm. um, that's one of the, the great lies of politics. Mm -hmm. uh, trade, by its definition, is mutually beneficial, mm -hmm. so long as it's relatively free. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's a notion somehow that if we 
if we trade with for, with other countries, that somehow harms us. Mm-hmm. Um, what it does do is it reallocates where resources are needed in the U.S., and that can be painful for the mm-hmm. people that are involved in industries that leave the U.S. So we should be cognizant of that pain. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, simply choosing to acknowledge or be willing to um, to engage with that means that we will that we will stagnate. We will be left behind in the world economy, mm-hmm. uh, and we will not be the economic leader that we have been. Mm-hmm. Um, closing off our economy doesn't work. Trade mm-hmm. increases prosperity. Mm-hmm. Full stop. Um, that's mm-hmm. what that's what the goal should be. But the the political instinct is there because people that are put out of work in manufacturing communities vote. Mm-hmm. They're loud. They mm-hmm. were harmed. They're unhappy. All of that is true. They were harmed. They are unhappy. Mm-hmm. And yet, overall, we we come out better off in the end, mm-hmm. uh, as we trade. Doesn't mean we shouldn't deal with the realities of that, but simply deciding we're never going to let our economy change is a surefire recipe to end up completely stagnated and not succeeding. Mm. I guess that's definitely agree with that. I guess where I was trying to go was the sort of theory that we can just economically strangle China. Um, they're using you know trade to build up their military, build up their economy, become more influential, and that's why uh, you know people like Senator Cotton, Tom Cotton might say that you know now we just do sanction them, isolate them. And do you think that's, one, do you think that's even possible? And two, do you think that might, since China is restrained by, by trade, it has to appease its trade partners in order to stay relevant. Do you think by just prematurely cutting them off now, it's just accelerating the path to a cold so, war? So, so typically trade sanctions don't work. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of the evidence suggests that there is, if there's any effect, it's very weak and very short lived. Um, the trade sanctions on Russia appear to be having a small effect right now. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a rarity because most of the relevant players haven't defected yet. Usually mm-hmm. what happens is you see defections pretty quickly in trade sanctions uh, where carve-outs start to happen, and then the sanctions lose all their force. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I, I, yeah, I've listened to, to Senator Cotton talk. Um, he presents a very compelling political story, mm-hmm. but not a very compelling economic story mm-hmm. because ultimately um, we can sanction them. Maybe we can even get some of Europe to sanction the Chinese, but fundamentally, there are lots of other trading partners for mm-hmm. the Chinese, and we're going to be giving up a whole bunch of trade that's beneficial to us um, if if we operate under those sanctions. And typically, look at the nations that we've sanctioned, Iran, Cuba, North Korea. Mm-hmm. We sanctioned them to do what? Try to get them to change the way they behaved. Mm-hmm. All of them still behave the way they did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, get, they do not work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the way I see this going is just, we're just going to end up with an angrier China, which you probably we probably don't want. We probably well, like. I, I don't. We'll end up with a, a China that that is trading in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and so maybe they'll be angry. I don't know. That's a counterfactual. I'm not prepared to to deal with in a meaningful way. But certainly, um, it will isolate them in the world order, and I don't think that's a positive overall. Mm-hmm. An isolated China is far more. Um, They'll, they'll be looking for ways to grow economically that that are problematic. Mm. And I'm assuming just more belligerent as well. Since Maybe. They to... I mean, we don't know that. Mm. that. That's a counterfactual that I think we'd have to do a lot of study on. Mm. Um, and we could probably um, we could look at some of it. The, Sen- the Shenzhen stuff, um, some of the, the trade agreements that were, were dealt with in, in those instances might give us some hints. Mm. Um, but... But I'm not certain that they. I'm not certain it would be severely more belligerent. But it, it's a possibility. Mm. 
and this is a very clean transition back to the second point I want to ask, which is about their economy. So some people would say the state capital, state capitalist model is unstoppable. They're building these massive skyscrapers. They got cool bullet trains. They have massive airports. And, you know, we California just can't complete a single bullet train. So, you know, maybe maybe it's us who needs to change. So what do you underrated, overrated? Well, that's, that's that's way overrated. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, so you look at um, so so the power of the China, the growth of the Chinese economy didn't come through state capitalism. Mm. Um, the power of the, the growth over the recent um, 50 years came not through primarily state corporations. That is, they have consolidated into increasing amounts of state corporations in the last 10 or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't, and those, and those corporations are not as successful. Um, now it's a risk for China when you allow corporations and especially their owners to get very wealthy and mm-hmm. powerful and they, they like to jail them periodically. <laughs> um, but it wasn't the state corporations in China that drove the growth. Um, so yeah, they have a, they have shiny bullet trains. I've ridden the bullet trains in China. They're <laughs> awesome. Um, I'm not sure they make economic sense. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a reason why China, why California can't build a, a bullet train. It's because it makes no damn sense. <laughs> um, it's not, there isn't the density, there isn't the, the need. Um, at this point, it is still way more efficient to fly or drive. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the demand isn't there. Um, they're operating on a, if you build it, they will come model. Mm-hmm. And that's hugely costly economically. And I think that would also, we'd see that to be true also of the bullet trains in China. Mm-hmm. But they're, they're costly. By the same token, they didn't have an air infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they went down the bullet train path rather than building out a massive air infrastructure. Now they built the new the new airport in Beijing and those things to try to, to increase air capacity. But most of those things, if you dug into the numbers of those of those things, I doubt they pan out very well economically. Mm. Yeah. But they're shiny and they're pretty mm-hmm. and everybody loves a good train. Mm-hmm. I don't know why human beings love trains so much. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure it's great for propaganda purposes as well. Oh, it's perfect. You put it on it and you get to talk about how, how advanced your technology is. But the question is, does it, does it make sense economically? And we don't know mm. the answer to that because they, they don't share that data. Mm. And also on the, the, the state-owned enterprise, enterprises you brought up are extremely problematic in the sense that um, just like public unions and public sec- public uh, utilities here in the U.S. don't want to change with the times and and modernize and do, be more competitive. Same thing with China. Uh, if you read Chinese leadership documents, they're always going off about reforming the SOEs, but it never gets done because the SOEs are essentially just one giant voting block uh, in the CCP. Yeah, no, so the CCP is a real problem in the state-owned enterprises, um, in large part because of the selection mechanism um, it, it exacerbates the problem of a state-run, of a straight-owned monopoly. It's mm-hmm. not even, so imagine that, so a, a state-run monopoly is bad enough. And now layer on top of that, a single-party system where the party is selecting um, not through, uh, they are selecting through obedience mechanisms, essentially, mm-hmm. how loyal a party member you are, and then you, you get that sort of leadership entrenched. There are some very talented leaders, uh, business leaders in those companies, but by and large, they're they're led by, sort of middling, well-connected CCP members and mm-hmm. not and not Jack Ma. Mm-hmm. And then Jack Ma <laughs> ends up taking a vacation. A vacation. He did. Took, um, a, took a vacation. Um, it's a very, very interesting way to phrase that. I'm not sure Jack Ma would agree in private that that was a vacation. Mm-hmm. And I guess for the audience, the context is that Jack Ma, the CEO of Alibaba, basically it's a privately owned company similar to Amazon, 
And at he, the moment, it's a private leader. At, at the, we'll yeah. see how long that lasts. <laughs> Uh, but he had the audacity to say that the Chinese state banking system is inefficient. And for that, he was hauled before regulators and met, and Ann Krupp, his project a finance company, was antitrusted to oblivion. And then he was, uh, I think the story is he went off to go paint for a couple months. That was yeah. the, he, the went away story. He went away for a while. Um, so I guess that's what happens to uh, real private entrepreneurs is that. Well, certainly real private entrepreneurs that decide to get a little out of step with the CCP. Mm -hmm. um, this is one of the things that um, has has become a real problem for the CCP is that as uh, um, as private businesses have succeeded and grown and built their own base of um, power and influence, um, they're no, they no longer look to the CCP um, as the as the primary. And so the CCP, like all sort of communist parties and authoritarian regimes, does not like any other uh, group or individual um, having influence or power within the system. And that's, I think, going to be an increasing problem because you'll you'll have more folks like Jack Ma that are that are that are will be viewed as a threat. Mm. We've, we've seen it happen a bunch. Um, we haven't even got into the Hong Kong issues yet. Um, we can certainly talk about those because um, I think. China expected Hong Kong to go one way, and it's turned into a, a giant mire pit for them. Mm. Um, uh, I they're guess... winning, but boy, is it un unpleasant for them. Mm -hmm. And that actually does conveniently segue to the next topic, which is uh, Xi Jinping's hold on power, the CCP's authority over places like Hong Kong or Xinjiang. Uh, many people would say Xi Jinping is this man of history, the second coming of Mao, absolutely unquestioned. All of the Chinese society is behind him and the CCP. What's the, what do you think about that? Well, so, so she clearly thinks of himself as the second coming of Mao, maybe mm -hmm. a better version of Mao in mm -hmm. his mind. Um, I think he, he would argue that he's going to kill less people than Mao did. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, that's we'll, see if that, we'll see if that's true. Um, <laughs> it's probably going to be true. Mm -hmm. But no, I mean, so uh, we're sitting here do, recording this while the, the party Congress in China is in session. Uh, if it goes as expected, he'll get an, um, his un, an unprecedented third term, although we've known it's going to happen for a while now. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that will solidify his hold on power within the CCP. That is, that doesn't mean we should think of the CCP as this monolithic block. Mm. Um, she has been purging people, mm -hmm. uh, pushing them out of the inner circle uh, to solidify his hold on power. And um, that really only happens for a couple of reasons. One of which is there's disagreement mm -hmm. with you, and so you have to get rid of them. Or you think there could be disagreement in the future, and so you get rid of them proactively. <laughs> Um, I suspect there's some of both going on at the mm -hmm. moment. Uh, and the question will be how long she can avoid the purge himself. Mm -hmm. um, eventually, I, I suspect he will he will either leave office um, mm -hmm. voluntarily and declare that he's a giant success or he'll be purged. Mm -hmm. I, I'm not sure which I think is more likely. Um, that being said, I think that there is a... I don't, I don't think support for the CCP is universal among the Chinese public. I think it's relatively high, but very, very uh, shallow. Mm. Uh, I think a lot of it is premised on the fact that there has been these long-run economic growth issues that have been so consistently positive, and year over year, uh, the Chinese public has seen their standard of living rise. Mm -hmm. uh, this is especially true as you get out of the major urban centers because the secondary cities and even some of the villages in China are where you've seen the most dramatic rises. Incidentally, that's where things have slipped the most in mm -hmm. the zero COVID era uh, and the other changes. So COVID just exacerbated a problem China was already having, which was a slowing of the growth. Um, because China, 
um, even before COVID, was already seeing some of its manufacturing go to other Southeast Asian countries where mm-hmm. it could be done cheaper. Um, and um, they were facing a, a competition problem. They were they were not the, the cheapest place to produce things anymore. Mm-hmm. And so China's been attempting to make a transition in their economy. Um, that's very difficult to do in a planned economy because mm-hmm. it's not dynamic. And um, COVID has exacerbated that. And the squeeze on Chinese business from the CCP just even even pushes that further. And so I think there will be a real struggle for the CCP to keep that level of support uh, high if economic outcomes turn bad. Mm. And on that point about the squeeze on businesses, many people posit that he's like, that's basically his main enemy are the, the factions in the CCP that are pro-business, pro-reform and opening. And I guess I want to ask you about what your take on, so people see for, since Deng Xiaoping to Hu Jintao, you have this gradual reform and opening, more liberalization, more privatization. And then Xi Jinping comes in, and many people say that he you know, single-handedly shifted the economy to the left. Um, of course, that happened superficially. Um, that's where the economy has been going. There's been more regulations, more state control. But do you think that um, Xi Jinping, of course, the, you know, as him as a man, that's what he believes in. This is his philosophy. But also that's the CCP itself is recognizing that perhaps a reassertion of party control is necessary for their long-term stability. Yeah, so so a couple of things. One of which is I really hate the left-right references in, mm. re- in reference to China. Um, you'll notice in, when you finally read all my edits, you know, you'll find out that I've taken those all out. Mm. Because I, think, I don't think it holds as well uh, there. I do think there's been a shift. And I think we can talk about it as a shift to greater state control. Mm. Uh, in the U.S., that would be consistent with a leftist shift. But I think um, for clarity purposes, what we really are talking about is a shift to greater state control. Mm. Um, by the same token, um, I think as you deal with um, the party itself, the CCP, I think any time there are new locus of power that are developing society, they become concerned. This is the Falun Gong issue. This is any number of other uh, groups. And business is now one of those groups. There was a long period of time um, where they viewed business as a key partner of, mm-hmm. the, C- of, the, of the Communist Party. Now that partner has grown up and is has its own center of power, and that is deeply concerning to the CCP. And so I would expect that to be the case, that they would be pushing back. On top of that, um, she's a true Marxist. He's mm-hmm. an actual believer. He's, mm-hmm. a, he's a true believer in the Leninist <clears throat> philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um, and that certainly influences the decisions that he makes. Uh, and then you layer on top of that his anti-corruption crusade, which is probably seven parts anti-corruption, three parts, I can get rid of my enemies by accusing mm-hmm. them of corruption. Um, that's how that always works. Mm-hmm. This is not a Chinese <laughs> phenomenon or a Xi phenomenon. Um, but layer on top of that, some of the advantages that were given to business in China were clearly corrupt. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you have, you have all those things sort of adding up, and she starts to respond in the way he does. Um, I think he's going to do it to disastrous consequences because – He's misdiagnosed the problem. The problem was the advantages that the CCP granted to business, not business itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the problem, the problems don't go away simply because the CCP is more involved. The CCP is not an institution that uh, that operates on either merit, democracy, or markets. Mm. And so, would you say that the it's almost like a contradiction between? wanting to have economic growth, wanting to have a free, a dynamic, not I was about to say free, a dynamic society in terms of inventing lots of things and whatnot, 
but also reasserting party control and basically becoming more totalitarian. Do you think it's even possible to have such a... So so I don't think they would call it totalitarian. I think Mm -hmm. they would be focused on um, the part that the party is the mechanism by which you get stability. Mm. So I think that's how they would frame it. I think Mm -hmm. totalitarian isn't a bad description objectively. Um, Do I think it's possible? No, we know that planned economies are not dynamic. Mm -hmm. Um, And fundamentally, the greater assertion the CCP has into the economy... Um, the more planned it will be, and therefore the less dynamic it will be. Mm-hmm. Um, and it will be harder to grow economically. Um, one of China's big problems is it, in macroeconomics, I would teach my students in the intro class um, that one of the reasons why China is able to grow so quickly is they had lots of catching up growth to do. Mm-hmm. China's trying to transition somewhat to cutting edge growth where they're developing new things, and that requires a far more dynamic economy than does a catching up economy. Mm-hmm. And that is almost impossible to do in a planned economy. Um, we believed that Russia was that for many decades. Mm-hmm. And then one afternoon <laughs> uh, in the late 80s and early, basically the late 80s and early 90s, um, it was all revealed that, uh, no, no, it wasn't. Mm-hmm. Um, none of that dynamism actually existed. It was all, it was all smokescreen. And I suspect um China continuing down the path it's on will lead to something similar. Mm-hmm. And then when, when you say... Um... I, I should just interject there. And hiding economic growth statistics mm-hmm. generally is part of that path. Mm-hmm. So do, do you, what do you think, looking at all, all, all this right now, what do you think Xi is thinking when he, when he sees the need for economic growth, but he's also thinking about the party's centrality in society and how he needs to maintain that? So, so this, I think, is where public choice really helps because... Mm-hmm. We start with Xi. So Xi has a she has a, his own set of goals. He then has goals for the Communist Party, and then he has goals for China. Mm. His own goals are he wants to solidify his control over power within the CCP. Um, he's doing that as we speak. Um, there have been a series of sweeps in China where uh, anybody who's a dissident has been summoned in by the police um, and made to account for their misbehavior. Um, if you saw the the on the news, there was the banner uh, that was put up mm-hmm. over a bridge in Beijing. Um, there have been a number of, a large number of folks pulled in because they've shared pictures of that banner on social media in China. Um, and they were called in and made to account. Um, some instances uh, pushed to apologize to the to the state mm-hmm. for this, um, which is ungood. I mean, mm-hmm. that is not the marker of a dynamic society. Uh, and so he's consolidating his own hold on power. At the same time, he looks at the CCP and is concerned that there are other locusts of power beyond that. Because he can, if he is the, the big man in the CCP, and the CCP is only one of many different locusts of power, that reduces his own power pretty dramatically. And so he's very interested in that. He's also a true believer in Marxism. He's a true Leninist. Mm. Um, or he would call him a, a Shiist, I suppose. <laughs> because um, he clearly has his own sort of version of Leninist philosophy. Um, and so he's interested in that. And at the same time, he is cognizant of the risks if China um, doesn't continue to grow economically. And so he's having to figure out all those things. But at the moment, until he consolidates power, that's where he's going to focus. And mm. then he'll start, I believe, to think about these other things. Mm. I, my concern is that his grasp on power will never be as secure as he wants, and so he'll spend lots of time purging and doing other things to, to try to maintain that. Mm. So I guess to wrap up, that's probably the line that gets me banned from China. (laughs) 
to, to wrap up before we move on to the last question, so I guess to summarize everything on this point, uh, the consolidation of power that we're seeing today is fundamentally in reaction to a concern about losing power. It's a, it's a move in desperation, not necessarily a move of just power for its own sake. Yeah, I don't, I don't, think, it's, I don't think it's just a, a megalomaniac power for power's sake. I'm not sure it's a move of desperation either. Mm-hmm. I think it's a move recognizing deep concerns about changes in Chinese society where other locus of power have started to emerge. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'll call it desperate when when large scale long term imprisonments and <laughs> um, executions and mm-hmm. um, some of the malice era stuff returns. But I think mm-hmm. it's clearly an example of of being concerned yeah. and wanting mm-hmm. to shore it up. Concern proactiveness is probably the better. Yeah, I think that's a better way to describe it. Mm-hmm. So last point, and this this came up during just over drinks. I remember this this very clearly. Um, not sure how serious it is, but uh, we'll, we'll end on this. I mean, you, you already know it's not a, it's not dumb, but um, some like I, but I do hear it all the time, and um, just in the general airwaves and whatnot. Like some people say, you know, in America we teach critical race theory, we argue over transgender bathrooms, and China they're they're turning out engineers, and they are super proud. They have patriotic education, and they're just fundamentally just more serious of a civilization than we are. Oh God, this this sounds like I. Is this, this is Fox. Like, this is, is like Tucker Carlson. Is, 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 like, sure. is this yeah. 1972, Ethan? <laughs> or we're talking about the Soviet Union? Uh, because these mm. are the same arguments that were being had: is that somehow um, the Soviets were were building a better society, and that our our openness and disagreement was our weakness. Mm. I think that's a misunderstanding of the way dynamic societies work. Um, fundamentally, do we live in a perfect society? We absolutely don't. Are there silly issues that we fight over? Absolutely. Mm. But the ability to fight over silly issues uh, is an important part. Now, my concern would be if we're no longer allowed to have the disagreements mm. over those things, then I'd be worried that we're stagnating. But when we're having large-scale debates on those things, that's what a dynamic society is doing. Mm. A dynamic society isn't isn't orderly. It's not it's not patriotic education, you get assigned to what career you're going to go into. Mm -hmm. That's a planned society. Mm. And planned societies are inherently bad at allocating resources. Mm -hmm. Um, Dynamic ones allocate them better. The process just is really messy, and it doesn't look Mm. like we know what the end result is because we don't know what the end result is. Mm. China thinks they know what the end result of it is, but that's Hayek, that's the pretense of knowledge mm. that, that Hayek talks so much about. The idea that somehow you can know the outcome. And so, yeah, I, I just, I don't view it as a, I, I think that's. Um, it's a fruitful problem. I think, it, I think it's silly thinking. Mm-hmm. I think it's just a, a bad way of looking at the world and being concerned. We should address issues that we think are silly in the U.S. Um, and, and there are things we, we should spend less time focused on, but. But the fact that we focus on them doesn't doesn't make us weak or stupid. Um, mm. That's 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 just silly talk. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess yeah, in China you can't have a course correction uh, when you're not allowed to question the status quo. Not, there are, there are not course corrections. There there are corrections that are made by the state. Mm-hmm. Um, and this happened in the Soviet Union a lot. I mean, the, the there are running memes about people being added and removed from photographs in Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. Uh, those memes exist because it happened. Mm-hmm. And that's what a planned society does is one day you're there, the next day you're not. Mm-hmm. Not a dynamic place. Mm-hmm. 
It doesn't reward risk-taking. Mm. So I guess when it comes to China, it may look aesthetically pleasing, you know, <laughs> it looks like a very orderly society. But at the end of the day, we know that democracies and liberal orders just happen to be are more innovative. And, well, right, I'm, I'm not sure democracies are more, but I, but mm -hmm. I think liberal orders mm -hmm. um, and, mar and free markets are. Mm -hmm. um, democracy is one version of a liberal order. Mm. Um, that being said, many of the values that are espoused in modern Western democracies are important to that. These are the bourgeois virtues that mm -hmm. uh, Deirdre McCloskey writes about. Um, but I mean, I think I don't think democracy is the the key feature there. Mm -hmm. It's the it's the openness of the society. It's the the tendency to truck, barter, and trade. And in so doing, you interact with a whole host of people and you have to learn toleration because otherwise your trades don't go as far. Mm. And that fundamentally, I think is what, what is the power of sort of the Western, the Western notion. Um, I don't, I don't even know that I would say it's aesthetically pleasing in China. Mm. <laughs> I mean, I guess to some people, in some people, yeah. it looks very mm. orderly. People who like read Plato or something like that. Yeah, it looks, it looks very orderly, mm -hmm. um, but that's also what they present. The actual humdrum of daily Chinese life, is not pretty and orderly. Mm -hmm. um, there still is is abject poverty throughout China. There is still um, moderate poverty in most of the major Chinese cities. And the actual business, where most of the economic growth is coming from in China, is just as messy and bumping around as American business and commerce is. Mm -hmm. And that's where the real power of economic growth comes from in China. It's not from the big state-owned enterprises. Mm -hmm. They look big but they're not what the drivers are. Mm. And I guess I'd like to end on, I guess, if you can give a suggestion on what the U.S. should do to sort of maintain that dynamic edge. Because I think some people are worried that we are losing that a little bit. I'm sure that's part of our own doing as well. So Yeah, no, I think the answer is remember, remember the bourgeois virtues. Remember mm -hmm. that tendency to truck, barter, and trade. And for God's sake, sit on your hands anytime you have an impulse to restrain those tendencies. Mm. Um, let them let the market work now whether that's a market in products or services or ideas let the market operate because our tendency to trade is part of what makes us that dynamic power anything that limits that will by its very nature limit our ability to grow and be dynamic well i can't think of a better way to end this interview thank Absolutely. you so much thanks ethan if you liked what you heard today and want to follow AIER for more of our cutting-edge content, make sure to follow us on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, as well as check out our website at AIER.org. If you want to support more cutting-edge research and conversations like this one, make sure to become a donor. All the information and more can be found at AIER.org. Thank you. Mm -hmm.